Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for December 20th, 2018. Obviously, chronologically speaking, this is going to be our last regular show before Christmas. Uh, I'll be taking a couple of weeks off, and we'll be back to normal podcasting uh, in the second week of January. Uh things may be a little slow that week uh, as I try to get back into the swing of things, so bear with me when we do come back. Uh, but let me say up front, happy holidays, happy Merry Christmas, happy New Year to uh, those of you who are celebrating those things uh, in the next couple of weeks, and uh, best wishes to you and your families, uh, regardless whether you're celebrating them or not. Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, I've, I, I want to say... Uh, how appreciative I am for everybody who's uh, subscribed to the the show and to the other features that we have here at Patreon and uh, follows along on the blog, and that's the way it was. Uh, all of you make possible the, the work that I'm doing, and I, I uh, can't thank you enough for that. I'm sending us all out on what I hope will be a very high note. Uh, it's an interview that I've been trying to line up for some time now. Uh, I'm going to be speaking in a minute here uh, with Anne-Marie Wainscott, who is a professor at Miami University of Ohio. She's a political scientist. Uh, her current research deals with the religious sector in Iraq, uh, but also she does and has done research into the bureaucratization of religion in uh, Islamic monarchies. Uh, and specifically, she has a book out called Bureaucratizing Islam that deals with the ways that the Moroccan monarchy has tried to kind of standardize and, well, bureaucratize, it's in the title, uh, religion in Morocco as a response to the kind of double whammy of 9-11 and then 10 years later the Arab Spring movement. Uh, so I'm going to talk to her about that because I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, I'll put a link to the, the book in the show description. I'll also put a link to her uh, Twitter if if. I'm going to have to ask her if she wants me to do that, actually. Uh, so hold off on that. Maybe I won't. Uh, but I'm definitely going to put a link to the book in, in the show description. Um, and we're going to talk to her about Morocco more generally. We're going to start off talking about uh, her book and the, the research that she's done. She's also done research into uh, something called the Third Pole, uh, which is uh, a special kind of project uh, of the Moroccan royal family to try and position itself as, uh, I guess, the third-way centrists or the no-labels crowd uh, of the Saudi-Iran dispute. Uh, that's probably not a fair description. Uh, but we'll talk about that because she's done research into that. And it's interesting. It's it's uh, There's some unique features or one in particular unique feature of the Moroccan royal family that allows them to try and play this role. So we'll get into a little bit of that and talk about how that's affected Morocco's relationships with both the Saudis and the Iranians. Uh, and then we'll talk about a couple of other things more generally about Morocco. These aren't areas that uh, Anne researches particularly, but since she's got, uh, she's very familiar with Morocco, I wanted to ask her about uh, last year's protests in the RIF, uh, the, the 2016 to 2017 protest movement, uh, which was fueled in part by a lot of inequality and uh, also by 
challenges posed by the the relationship between Morocco's Arab and Berber populations. So I'm going to ask her about that. Uh, and then finally, we're going to close with a little discussion about Western Sahara. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll try to give you the five-second explanation of the, the background of the Western Sahara conflict. Uh, and then I just want to ask her uh, for her perspective on recent events, because there have been some. Western Sahara was a frozen conflict for you know a couple of decades, but there are signs it may be unfreezing itself. So I wanted to ask her about that just to get her her perspective. Uh, so yeah, that's the roadmap, and um, I will uh, get her on the phone, and we'll proceed from there. I guess. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's do it. Okay, so I'm here with, uh, on the phone, Anne-Marie Wainscott. Anne-Marie Wainscott is a professor at Miami University of Ohio. Uh, she's a political scientist. She's, researched, she's researching uh, religion in Iraq, but she's also done a, a fair amount of research on Morocco. And since, we've, since we rarely talk about Morocco around here, I figured uh, what better chance to, <laughs> to talk about it and to have somebody on who, who uh, really knows something about the place and can, can talk to us about it. Uh, so, Anne, uh, welcome and, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, so, I wanted to talk first about uh, two things that you've researched uh, in particular because they're both, I think, uh, very interesting. You've got a book uh, called Bureaucratizing Islam uh, that gets into the response that the Moroccan uh, royal family and government have made to, I think, kind of the the, the double whammy of 9-11 first and then the, the Arab Spring protest 10 years after that to sort of bring religion under some kind of state control. And it reminded, the thing it reminded me of was, like, when I was in grad school, I studied kind of middle period and early modern uh, history, and it reminded me of, of the Ottomans. The, 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 they tried to also bureaucratize kind of religious offices if you were kind of issuing legal rulings and things. They wanted you to be inside the tent kind of working for them. Uh, and so, you know, it reminded me of that, but I wanted to, to, you know, talk to you about what's happening in Morocco and, and, you know, what's the sort of modern way that this is going on. So if you could talk first about just what, what it means, what bureaucratizing Islam means kind of in a general way, and then, and then talk about what's happening in Morocco. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Ottoman Empire. I mean, Morocco is unique in the region in that it was not formally a part of the Ottoman Empire, and so none of the Ottoman institutions for managing religion um, obviously remain in that context. So what we see in Morocco is a unique set of institutions that have been developed exclusively by the current regime to manage religion. Um, the phrase bureaucratizing Islam was chosen for the book um, because I wanted to stress, one, that it's an ongoing process. That's why um, have that uh, ing on bureaucratizing this isn't something that's been accomplished it's a process that began very clearly after 2003 particularly if you look at for example um, budget data or at the size of the religious bureaucracy it's clear that there's been a dramatic increase in the size of the bureaucracy both 
in terms of the number of institutions, in terms of the number of employees, and entire, in terms of the size of the budget. Um, one thing that I found really compelling as a piece of evidence when I was researching the book is that not only has the expansion uh, really been tied to 2003, that's the year uh, that Morocco suffered its first major domestic terrorist attack in the city of Casablanca, um, the funding for the religious bureaucracies is in some ways tied directly to terrorist attacks. So in the years following domestic terrorist attacks, the budget to the Moroccan Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs goes up something like 80%, whereas in a regular year, it only goes up about 20%. So we see a direct correlation between the funding of the ministry and the presence of terrorist attacks. I think that highlights how Morocco really sees state control of religion as a solution to what it deems a religious problem, that is terrorism. Um, there would have been other options. Uh, it's not a foregone, foregone conclusion that a state would see terrorism as a religious problem. For example, um, Sir the Syrian regime in the early 1980s uh, reacted differently, even though it felt a threat from the religious sphere and protests in the early 1980s. The focus was less on state control of religion and more on co-optation of loyal religious elites who remained independent from the state, but who could also kind of help with controlling the narrative. So it wasn't, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Morocco would say, uh, we need to use state-sponsored institutions to manage religion. This was an intentional choice. Um, I have a great quote in the book from the deputy foreign minister where she basically says, you know, word for word, we basically, we chose to take control of the religious field. So there's hmm. intentionality, planning, strategy, um, and also this direct connection with um, seeing terrorism as a problem that can be solved through management of the religious field. That's interesting, because I, I, would, I would think, I, I mean, I think you could say... Historically, uh, the more common solution when rulers see religion as getting out of hand is not to kind of bureaucratize it, but to do, as you said, take take another alternative like co-opting friendly religious leaders. Is there like why why did the Moroccans choose to to go this way and and not some other solution? Oh, that's a good that's a good question, and it reminds me that I kind of missed a key part of the story. I mean. The immediate response to the Casablanca bombings was not bureaucratization of religion. Um, that came about a year later. In that first year, you can see when you look back that there was kind of what I would guess was internal debate within uh, those individuals who surround the monarchy, what we call in the city of Morocco the Mahzan, the storehouse of power. So these are unelected advisors to the king who wield real power as opposed to like the prime minister or political party leaders who really don't have that much power, particularly in 2003, um, what we can see is that there was debate over how to respond to this. And initially, the response is what you would have expected, like a coercive crackdown. Uh, Human Rights Watch has a great report from this period where they say, they quote an official saying, we arrested everyone with a beard. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, it was just a blank down, coercive, security-based strategy. Um, That's, it's a very objective a little, standard. Less than a year later, a number of Moroccans were implicated in the Madrid bombings, um, the 2004 Madrid train bombings. And um, I think that double whammy of a domestic terrorist attack and uh, Moroccan involvement in a European terrorist attack, particularly an ally like Spain, um, was deeply distressing for the monarchy in terms of its international reputation. 
and um, underscored that uh, the argument couldn't be made that this was a one-off or um, just a, a problem of the slums of Casablanca. This was obviously a broader problem that had to be addressed. Um, and so the strategy for managing the religious field was announced shortly thereafter, about a month after the Madrid bombings. And so I think... Um, I think there was realization that the coercive strategy, which has been so popular elsewhere in the region, particularly in a country like Egypt, um, it just has too many costs for a country that relies on a tourism industry, uh, for a country that has very strong relations with a number of European and um, Western countries like the U.S. Um, and so this strategy, I mean, I think it's brilliant, personally. I, in general, I enjoy studying the Moroccan monarchy because I think they're good. <laughs> they're good at being authoritarian <laughs> monarchs. They're not clumsy like other leaders. They, uh, they're slow. They're systematic. They're thoughtful. They're shrewd. Um, and, and they seem to, to see any negative circumstances as an opportunity to increase their power. So, um... In a sense, they've greatly increased their control over the religious sector, and they've obtained like international repute as you know the darlings of the counterterrorism movement. They actually train imams from all over Africa, West Africa, some European countries, um, as a result of this bureaucratization. So they've really benefited in a number of ways. It's not just about controlling uh, terrorism as a problem within their own country. It's also about appearing proactive to um, foreign donors, foreign partners. And it's had, like, all sorts of um, positive positive impacts for the monarchy. I have one story in the book, which, gosh, I don't think I can get all the details right off the top of my head. But basically, for a period of time, Morocco refused to share intelligence with France because the French were investigating a senior Moroccan official for torture, and they were offended that this person had been, I believe, um, either, I think, arrested on French soil, and they thought it was disrespectful to arrest a Moroccan government official, even though he or she was, I think she was, he was being sued in the French courts, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they basically stopped security cooperation with the French to punish them for having taken this line on um, a, a, like a hard line against torture toward one of their um, bureaucrats. And then later, the French had to basically come begging on their knees for security collaboration in order to solve one of their domestic terrorist attacks. So Morocco can kind of use not only its control of the religious field, but the fact that many of its citizens in Europe and descendants of its citizens in Europe have been responsible for or involved with terrorist plots to um, get what it wants from foreign partners. And I think now everyone's kind of fallen in line. I mean, I don't know if you're following. There's been recently a terrible, terrible situation in Morocco where two um, young women from Scandinavia, Denmark, and Norway were murdered in their tents. Right, um, just the past couple of days, yeah. And I see in the language that foreign... Like foreign ministers and prime ministers are using and talking about the situation that they know not 
to speak negatively of the Moroccan state. So all the language is very like, we trust our Moroccan partners to fully investigate the situation. We are confident oh. of Morocco's ability to, you know, process these suspects in their judicial system. I mean, all the language is very, it strikes me that European leaders know they need to cooperate with Morocco in order to maintain uh, their own counterterrorism operations. And so even in situations where perhaps the Moroccan state could be criticized, I mean, Morocco's judicial system is not known as, like, effectively <laughs> handling basically anything. Um, and, and so all this language from European leaders about how confident they are that the Moroccans will uh, process these four suspects that have been arrested for these murders uh, strikes me as evidence that... European leaders well beyond the normal partners, France, Belgium, Spain, know not to alienate their Moroccan counterparts. That's very interesting. So I was going to ask uh, how effective this has been, and I don't know now whether to ask. I mean, I guess it's been really effective in Morocco's relationship with Europe. Um, and and internally, I guess what I, what I was curious about was two things. Uh, first, did this policy go through any changes because of the Arab Spring? And correct me if I'm wrong, but in Morocco there was a, a sort of a show at least of kind of making things a little more democratic and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. moving the, the focus away from the monarchy and onto the, gov- the civilian government. Uh, did that affect this policy at all? And then my second question uh, would be how is how have these changes sort of uh, been felt by like the average Moroccan citizen? Like the you know is is it has it impacted the way that they experience Islam on a on a on a daily basis, or is this something that's more kind of you know happening behind closed doors that doesn't really affect people on that level? Well, these are the two million dollar questions and. In this field of study, and I don't have I don't have a uh, acceptable answer for either question. I mean, on the subject of effectiveness, um, I get this question a lot. Like, well, Morocco doesn't have very many terrorist attacks, therefore, this policy right? That, yeah, it's sort of self evident on that and level. I, I actually don't accept personally. I do not accept that okay. um, line of argumentation. The reason being that. Um, I don't think, I think even if Morocco had completely ignored the religious field after 2003, I don't think they would have had that many terrorist attacks in over the last you know, 15 years. Um, one, they also have a security strategy that's built on some similar practices that you see across the Middle East in terms of extensive you know, informant networks. They've introduced in 2015 a new um, FBI-type internal investigative unit to their security services. Um, So in addition to the strength of the state, which I think is one factor here, um, I also think the grievances are less in Morocco than they are in other states um, because Morocco focuses on really public... um, kinds of infrastructural investment, so like train stations, tramways, like very publicly visible projects that um, 
a lot of people benefit from. Like in Morocco, basically, like if you're waiting on the train platform, it's going to come on time, and you're going to get where you're going on time, like pretty regularly. I mean, I think it's pretty impressive. Um, They've already got work. Washington D.C. beat them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the DC Metro like <laughs> has some things to learn from, like uh, the Moroccan train network. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't want to undervalue the very real grievances that Moroccan citizens have, but I do just think, in terms of, in comparison, like I do a lot of research in West Africa as well, and a lot of West Africans travel to Morocco, and when they talk about the differences in terms of the resources they have access to in each of the two places. Like, a lot of people deeply respect the amount of public investment we've seen from the Moroccan monarchy in things like transportation, health infrastructure. So um, I guess on the question of effectiveness, I would say we don't know how effective this religious regulation strategy has been. Um, I suspect long-term it will have negative consequences in that I think the healthiest form of a religious sector for any state is a diversified one in which people who oppose the state can find a place to position themselves religiously that doesn't make them a critic of the state, right? Like, Mm. right now, the Moroccan regulation of the religious field and the theology that's promoted as quote-unquote Moroccan Islam is so hyper-pervasive um, that it almost encourages people to have to join underground religious networks in order to not subscribe to that, you know, Maliki, Sufi, Sunni, Ash'ari theology. Right, right. Um, so I guess but, I'm really, like, taking um, too long to answer. But no, I, but I mean, yeah. I guess yeah, what I'm trying like... to say is that on the effectiveness side, like, I think the most effective strategy would have been to allow, like, much more diversity in the religious field. And we see in recent years that the monarchy and the Mahsan might might be coming to that same conclusion because we see, whereas the first 10, 12 years of this policy was basically, like, hypercritical of the Salafi movement, we now see kind of Salafi accommodation underway that I think suggests a realization that a more vibrant religious field where people can have a variety of theological positions um, and not necessarily be considered as um, critical of the state is um, is more effective than pushing people outside of the fold if they don't want to accept a very specific theology. Okay, okay. And uh, remind me what the second question was. Uh, right, so the second question was um, sort of, I, I mean, you kind of answered this actually. My, the second question was kind of how is this how have these policy changes been experienced by um, kind of Moroccans on a day-to-day basis? And I think, you know, one way is, you know, if they're not, if it, if it's not something that, that draws them in, they're sort of forced into kind of underground religious movements, which, you know, long-term seems like it's a, a risk for some some kind of radicalization but uh are there other ways that people you know that that somebody who was around you know 20 years ago would remember practicing islam in morocco that that have you know they would they would experience it differently now because of all these i mean i think the experience is very subtle for the average moroccan i mean do they realize that their imam is now on the government payroll did they know beforehand that that person was not paid by the state. I don't know. 
Um, there are some more visible changes that indicate state control. Like, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, Morocco installed something like 60,000 flat screen televisions and mosques across the country to display Moroccan state-run religious programming. And Morocco has created a state-run religious TV station and a very popular state-run religious radio station. Basically, any cab you get in, in the city of Rabat, they're playing the station, or that's been my experience. Huh. It's sad stuff. So, um, uh, so I don't think for the average citizen that these changes would be palpable. Like, I think they might say, like, oh, there's an increase in religiosity, and they might see that as an organic movement, whereas I would see that there's been state support to religious institutions in order to flood the religious field with a particular set of messages, both online, and on TV, on radio, um, and also, like, in public fora. Um, but my, my guess, and I have not done research in terms of, like, audience, um, audience evaluation, my guess is that the average Moroccan is unaware of the forms of religious instruction they're receiving that are state-funded versus not state-funded. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, so I wanted to get into part of, I guess, part of what Moroccan Islam is about, and this is something you've also done research in, which is uh, the idea of kind of positioning Morocco as... I in the intro I, I recorded before you came on I, I called them the the no labels m group of the Sunni Shia kind of Saudi Iran rivalry they're the the third way uh, centrists the third ball, yeah. <laughs> right um, so I wanted to ask you about that like I, I I mean talk about why Morocco and the Moroccan royal family are kind of uniquely positioned to occupy a, a, a third pole in this debate. And, um, you know, well, we, I mean, we can get into sort of the impact that that's had, but is that something that is that, that they use in the sort of domestic religious message, or is it more something that uh, feeds Moroccan kind of regional foreign policy? Oh, good questions. Um, let me just briefly tell the story of how I came to this project, because I think it's helpful. Um, in 2015, I was doing interviews in Senegal with religious elites um, to evaluate how they were responding to Moroccan religious outreach. So um, after the violence and instability coup in northern Mali, Morocco had offered to train Malian imams to offer kind of quote-unquote spiritual security to Mali. And when other countries heard about this program, they started asking Morocco, will you train our imams as well? And so over the last three years, um, we've seen, uh, well, longer than that, I guess, 2013, over the last five years, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of imams from all over West Africa and some countries in Europe um, being sponsored to travel to Morocco and obtain religious instruction. And uh, so when I was in Senegal doing field work, I was asking, the Senegalese were considering sending some of their own imams. So it was kind of a decision moment for their country. And I was interviewing a broad range of religious elites about Moroccan religious foreign policy. Uh, this all ended up published in an article I have in the journal Politics and Religion. Um, but I was interviewing a religious, uh, I guess you'd say intellectual, about 
about how he was responding to Moroccan religious outreach. And I will say overall that I got extremely positive responses to the extent that I found it puzzling, right, that that a, a religious elite would be comfortable with kind of outsourcing the training of their religious elites to Morocco. But this kind of gets yeah. to answering your question. Uh, uh, Morocco is so respected as a provider of religious education because of the role of Qadawin University and Fez in training religious elites for, I think, over 1,200 years now, that this uh, development of state-sponsored religious educational programming was not seen as a new development, but was rather seen as a continuation of Morocco's long reputation of providing religious instruction. So the move from it being huh. private okay. and um, managed by the ulama or the religious scholars exclusively to being state-managed was not seen as problematic or even noticed by a number of religious elites in Senegal and beyond. So in speaking with one uh, religious philosopher, um, He's the one who first made this argument to me. He said, I believe Morocco is trying to position itself as the third pole between Iran and Saudi Arabia um, to kind of, uh, trying to remember his exact language, to like occupy like the moderate Islam space and to like monopolize that space. Okay. So I've been reflecting on that idea since then, like in what ways is Moroccan religious programming, um, part not just of a response to terrorism, but also or, or or kind of proactive positioning to obtain a good reputation, but also a form of geopolitical strategy meant to benefit Morocco as the quote unquote like good Muslim power. Okay, that's interesting. Is is this tied up at, at all with? Um, like the Alawite dynasty's sense of itself. I mean, they're they're kind of a unique case where they claim descent from Ali, but they're Sunni. So, it, it, does that factor into? To, is it sort of an idea that they can be a, a middle way between these two communities or anything like that? I've never heard that specific okay. language used in the sense of. Um, referring to the dynasty itself as a defense for the religious policy, but there is always reference, of course, to the king's title as commander of the faithful, um, which is a religious title that actually has been officially or legally taken on by the Moroccan monarchy relatively recently. I, I believe it originates in the 1962 constitution, um, and that, in fact, at that time, um, the king had to be encouraged by others to take on this power. It was obviously a very secular time in the in the Arab world in terms of how um, political elites presented themselves, and it didn't make sense at the time, of course, by the 1980s. It was clear what a resource this title was. Um, but I haven't heard the actual dynasty itself referred to. That's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, perspective that I hadn't considered. How, how does, how has this, Project. I mean, it's, well, I guess to the extent that uh, Morocco has tried to position itself in this way, is this something that that has impacted Morocco's relationship with the Saudis, and on the other hand, Morocco's relationship with Iran? I, you know, this isn't um, an area that I'm especially familiar with. It seems to me that 
they don't have particularly close relationships with either country, uh, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, and you know, uh, how you know how have those relationships been affected by the sort of religious positioning? I guess that that, that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, you can't say for sure, of course, but I do see indications that Morocco has been very delicately managing its relationship with Saudi Arabia. For various reasons, it has sometimes been seen as too quick to support Saudi policies. And so... Um, Gosh, I'd have to go back and read my third poll. <laughs> that's draft. fine. No, that's, that's sorry. Fine. I've been working like no in Iraq for a year and a half. Yeah, I'm no, kind of I, in a different totally. headspace. But basically, there's been uh, a lot of examples of Morocco being like too quick to um, support Saudi positions, and so okay. especially after Mohammed bin Salman has uh, kind of wrested authority and his disastrous policy in Yemen. Morocco does, if I remember correctly, provide some air support to that effort. But um, then when the blockade against Qatar came about, Morocco uh, did not kind of just accept the Saudi position, but was much more restrained, tried to act as like a negotiator or like a middle um, middleman. Uh, So I think what we're seeing is like, Morocco walking a very fine line between, like, needing Saudi financial investment and Saudi aid, um, but also really wanting to appear independent of Saudi policy. And I think it's actually managed this pretty pretty successfully. I've seen some criticism of actually, Moroc- to kind of bring this full circle, of Moroccan religious policy on the grounds of the strength of the alliance between Morocco and Saudi as being... Um, contradictory, like how can Morocco promote "quote unquote" moderate Islam and then maintain such strong relations with Saudi Arabia? Um, from this, this was a report from like a domestic Moroccan think tank. Um, so I do think it is opening the country up to some criticism, but um, overall, I would say Morocco has managed this kind of dancing act of. Uh, maintaining good relations. You know, the Saudi king is always vacationing in Morocco. You know, there's all these indicators <laughs> yeah. that the relationship remains strong, even though um, even though there has clearly been an effort to appear less of a kind of Saudi, kind of um, always reliable partner on every front. Okay, okay. Um, so I, I would be... Um, remiss i guess since since you are uh, you've studied morocco i i i feel like even though these aren't the your your areas of of expertise necessarily you you've got to you certainly know more about them than i do uh the two things i think uh you know you mentioned the the just this week the the uh, discovery of those two bodies and and mm-hmm. that morocco's been in the news for that the last few days but uh over the last couple of years uh, the, I think the two things that people are most familiar about when they uh, think about Morocco in general are uh, the the protest movement in the Rif in 2016, 2017, uh, the Harak Rif, uh, and then what's happening in Western Sahara, which, you know, is just only recently. There have been some developments after a very long period where it was sort of a frozen situation. Uh, 
I wanted to ask you first about uh, the riff protests and um, some of the background to that, which you know had to do a lot with kind of a sense of inequality and the struggles of uh, the Berber population in particular of that part of, of Morocco. Um, can you can you give people a sense of what the kind of social life is like in Morocco and especially for the Berber community? How, how big of a struggle has it been kind of in general for them uh, to, to establish rights, language rights, social rights, and, and to sort of scrape in existence, uh, economically speaking? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty broadly accepted that the Moroccan North and the region of the Rift in particular has been neglected by multiple Moroccan administrations. Um, in the early 1970s, there were multiple coup attempts against the previous king, Hassan II, and many people have interpreted the lack of services offered to that region, kind of the poor level of economic development, as retribution or um, as a payback for um, some of the coup plotters having come from that region. Now, the rift I mean, I don't know how, much, how far deep you want to go into Moroccan history, but this region was known not just in recent times, but always as a site that was difficult to control. Um, historically, Moroccan sultans were continuously trying to exert their influence outside of the major royal cities, you know, Marrakesh, Fez. Um, and so part of this involved like basically military subjugation of rebelling tribes. And so it was a continuous process. It wasn't like Moroccan sultans had full control of the entire territory that is today considered Morocco at all times. It was always like a shifting boundary, and tribes were always trying to assert their authority across the country, and especially outside that triangle. And then, um, and then sultans would come and kind of like force them to submit and the Reef region in that historical context was always seen as, like, basically the most difficult region to subdue. And we see that even in the contemporary um, Reef protest movement, that descendants of um, those who rebelled in previous times, even in colonial times, have been able to uh, use that reputation and the kind of cultural capital or social capital of having been descended from those who led rebellions in order to lead protest movement in the contemporary times that's responding to those social grievances of, um, of basically, like, government inaction or um, government, what's the word, um, like, poor, the poor provision of services, basically, by the state to that region. So the actual, like, spark that started these protests, I mean, it's a horrific story, really, basically, um, a Moroccan... A fisherman um, dove into a garbage truck in order to rescue his um, catch of the day. It's actually an extremely lucrative fish, very expensive. And somehow, it's not clear to me how intentional or unintentional this was, the person running the garbage truck turned on the garbage truck as this man dove in to, to save his catch that had been confiscated by police, and he was crushed to death. And he was very young, I think 31, 
and the protests that responded were saying like this like this incident is emblematic of the region of the way our region is treated of the way our resources do not benefit us um I was calling for, the protests were calling specifically for an investigation of this individual's death, um, a call for demilitarization, like uh, more autonomy for this region. And then coming back to this issue about like social services, there was requests for like hospital, university, you know, uh, various other, um, various other social services. So... Um, it's kind of funny to talk about this after having talked about the response to 2003, because we see this similar dynamic, like the immediate response of Moroccan authorities tends to be violent or coercive, and then long term you see a more shrewder approach. So in the immediate aftermath of these protest movements, which began, I think, October of 2016, um, was a violent crackdown on protesters. Um, and the king uh, tried to frame this as, I think, very clumsily, actually. In, in general, I'm impressed by the king's kind of strategies, but I, f- I found his response to be almost laughable. I mean, basically, he framed it like, I had an ongoing project underway, which he had technically announced a project in 2015 in the region, a development project. But then he framed it as like, oh, my ministers have been inactive or have been, like, incompetent implementing my program. Like, this isn't about a monarchical, what's the word I'm looking for, like, uh, inaction. This is, like, poor implementation by ministers. So right. I think it's the, the buck stops over jobs, there. You know, sort of thing. <laughs> so that, I mean, in that sense, the kind of... Uh, does it? I guess it helps a little bit that they they tried to redirect focus after the Arab Spring onto the civilian government because now you can blame the civilian government for exactly. screwing up. Absolutely, <laughs> like, yeah. Even though it's like well understood that the civilian government has like very little authority, particularly over the the budget. You know? Right, so, right. Um, <laughs> I, it is kind of humorous. Oh, funny how I mean, it's obviously that. like the performance of outrage. <laughs> That's well, you know, uh, you got to take take your opportunities where you can get them, I guess. Um, OK, and so the last thing I wanted to talk about was just there have been some recent developments in the uh, the Western Sahara situation. And, you know, we can run through the kind of dime store version of the history of that conflict. It was considered the last calling in Africa it was a Spanish possession until 1975. Uh, Spain that year decided to leave. Morocco immediately staked what it says is a historic claim to the region, but the uh, indigenous population, the Sahrawis, uh, resisted that. There's a, a group called the Polisario Front that has been engaging ever since in sort of an on a you know kind of hot and cold running rebellion. Uh, and Algeria has been involved. Mauritania had staked a claim to the region at one point, has uh, then kind of dropped it. Uh, Algeria seems to get involved more as a way to kind of irritate Morocco than anything else, it seems to me, at least. Uh, and the UN stepped in in 1991 and imposed a, a, a ceasefire with the promise that there would be a referendum, that the Sahrawis could vote on whether they wanted to be independent or become part of Morocco. Uh, here we are. God, I'm going to have to do math on this. 27, almost now 28 years later, uh, there hasn't been a referendum. Uh, things have remained frozen pretty much that entire time. Uh, but there have been some developments recently. So I wondered if you could uh, talk about that uh, just in kind of a, you know general terms. 
the situation is so extremely complicated um, bureaucratically because you have a number of actors involved, right? You have um, the Moroccan position, the Moroccan official state position. You have the Polisario, who obviously have their own spokespeople. You have Algeria, and then the United Nations has a special envoy for Western Sahara, who is uh, ostensibly supposed to be trying to implement the referendum that was called for, but is more just the pressure on the process. You know, we'll make an annual visit, um, and we'll basically try to... What's the word? Um, move the process forward. So some of the recent developments that are worth noting, um, one, for a long time, Christopher Ross had been the um, personal envoy for Western Sahara. I think it's like 2009 to 2017, maybe. So, you know, a lengthy tenure. Uh, and he wasn't very successful in his position. I don't think... Um, it was necessarily his approach. Um, I, I kind of coming back to what I was saying earlier about Morocco being like extremely shrewd. At least that's my opinion. Um, I, I think like they were not going to allow him to succeed in his efforts, and there are various examples of that. Um, so the so that, that's one development that there's been a new um, special envoy. His name is Horst Kohler, and he's from Germany. So I think having someone who's not from the United States is beneficial for um, an actual resolution, because I think at the end of the day, my read of the situation is that most people in government in the United States support the Moroccan call for autonomy, but not independence for this region. And so I think if you have someone in a major position meant to facilitate a negotiation who's perceived of as having an agenda, he's not really well positioned to <laughs> negotiate, right? And so I think moving moving that position to uh, a German uh, is is a good is a good development. Um, well, it's it's interesting because I I read I think like just recently that the Moroccans are convinced that John Bolton of all people is like in Polisario's pocket basically that he's like, uh you know really pushing for Western Sahara independence and they're very nervous about him, uh they were very nervous about his Africa speech and uh, the talk about the U S kind of drawing down support for UN peacekeeping missions in Africa because they think it's you know, tied into this sympathy, I guess, that he has for, for the Sahrawis. And, and, you know, he's going to try and defund that uh, peacekeeping effort in particular and kind of leave the Moroccans high and dry, I guess. I, I Of all the things I knew about John Bolton, this was not something that I knew about him. Yeah. Uh, but apparently, yeah. you know, this is what they they think. I mean, the discourse about this is always very conspiratorial. Um, you know, I don't... Um, I get a Morocco news, uh, Google News alert every day, and so I read everything published about uh, the Morocco news, but I, w- I will admit to not clicking. <laughs> it strikes me as conspiratorial um, because there, there are certain public statements that are made for domestic consumption in Morocco that are meant to shape how Moroccans understand power dynamics, and those don't really interest me. And so I would say that, that those kind of statements are more meant for um, domestic consumption of Moroccans to um, suspect that other players are not coming with good faith to the table. Um, there has been some 
I mean, I don't know how I don't know how to interpret some of the recent events. I mean, the Moroccan king has basically called for dialogue with the Algerians. This is a major step, at least I think. Um, it seems to make sense, you know. Uh, Algeria has like, basically. Uh, um, I mean, I don't, what's the what's the politically correct to character way to characterize Bouteflika? <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> That's okay. I'm uh, very unpolitically correct. Leader about who yes. um, who like never appears publicly and. Um, no, every time I, I mention him on my my site, I I do a weekend at Bernie's reference, so it's it's not. <laughs> Fine, say what you he's want. like in his 80s and like I don't know if you've seen him speak recently like he has to basically whisper he can't even he can't even really speak um, he, that's how weak he is so I think it's clear that Algeria is in a kind of weak position and when Bouteflika dies obviously there's going to be like a huge like power struggle who's going to take his position and so Morocco is like this comes back to like the fun of watching the Moroccan monarchy work offering now to enter negotiations with Algeria because Algeria is just an awful situation, right? Because um, if they decline, then they look like they're an ill-intentioned partner. But if they um, if they accept, they're accepting to start a process at a time when their own, you know, they're poised for a period of instability in their own domestic politics. So I think it was, I, I, I guess, I guess I spoke too strongly earlier. It's not, it's not, um, it's a significant development in that it could have an impact, but it's clearly a kind of foreign policy move that's meant to um, that's meant to uh, be more of a public relations campaign for Morocco than an actual substantive policy resolution. That's my reading. Makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> now there is supposed to be talks in 2019, a roundtable of sorts um, that the new special envoy is hosting, um, and he has gotten all sides of the conflict to agree to a, a roundtable. So I do think we could see movement, um, but I think what's more likely is um, just a lot of a, a lot of the blame game. So. It's I mean yeah, it's sort of hard to like. I don't know what the common ground would be. Morocco doesn't want a referendum. The Polisario wants a referendum. It's kind of a, it's a little black and white to, to figure out where the where the compromise could be drawn. Yeah, the real issue there is like who would vote in the referendum because um, Morocco has the the state has shipped so many people to that region. I, okay, all right. The Polisario right. want only people it. who are registered under. I think it's like the 1974 census, or okay. you know, okay. and their descendants to get to vote. Right. And so there's debate about even if a referendum went place, if it would actually reflect the original intentions of the United Nations calling for that referendum, because basically the demographic change has been so severe. Okay. So I mean. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't this have is, a, You see why have, this has been frozen uh, for 28 years. I don't know the years, way forward. Um, I think Morocco rejoining the African Union might open up uh, some sort of other avenue because Morocco is clearly trying to position itself as a leader on the African continent, not just in the religious sector, but also as an economic power, as a banking power, um, to a certain extent as a military power. Um, so it, it is possible that if there's enough pressure from the African Union that there might be some sort of solution forced, but I have a hard time, because of the role of 
like the Polisario as like the bad guy in Moroccan political discourse, I have a really hard time envisioning the Moroccan regime ever ever accepting any kind of um, independence for that region. So I think I think it would have to be some sort of extreme autonomy okay. for it to be accepted. All right. Well, Anne-Marie Wainscott, thank you very much for coming on and, and helping all of us, I think uh, myself included, understand Morocco a little bit better. Uh, the book is Bureaucratizing Islam. I'll put a little uh, link to the to its description on the show description here. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if, uh, you know, uh, thanks for doing this and, uh, we should talk Iraq sometime. I'll, we'll, we'll see if we can work. Oh, that, that would be fun. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I, I focus on the Iraqi religious sector, so I, I'm not as interested in the politics, but it, no, but that's, I mean, it's a sector, fascinating with the yeah. political sector. I'm happy to comment on that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Cool. All right. Bye. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. So once again, I want to thank Anne-Marie Wainscott, professor at Miami University of Ohio, for coming on and talking about Morocco. I, I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did, too. Uh, she's got she, I, I did ask her after the interview uh, if it was OK to give you her Twitter account. Uh, it's at Anne-Marie Wainscott or sorry, at Anne M. Wainscott. Uh, a-N-N-M-W-A-I-N-S-C-O-T-T. Uh, I'll put that in the show description so you, you don't have to uh, transcribe it here from, from what I'm saying. She also has a website, uh, which I knew about but forgot about. Uh, she helpfully reminded me of it after the after we did the interview. Uh, it's annemariewainscott.com. I will also put that in the show description along with a link to uh, the page for her book at, at Cambridge University Press. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can check all those things out. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. And I, as I said in the introduction to the show, her current research is actually on Iraq. So on the kind of the religious uh, sector in Iraq. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on. And with that, uh, I think we are out for 2018, uh, barring some unforeseen circumstance. Uh, once again, I want to thank each of you for being part of the, the podcast and the blog and uh, the Patreon site for the last year and uh, look forward to seeing you in the new year. Uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, whatever it is that you're celebrating. Uh, best wishes from me to you and, and your families and, and your loved ones. Uh, until we're back in 2019, as always, thanks for listening, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.